So as I mentioned, we're going to get into wisdom literature tonight. Uh, but before we do, I just have a little, a little game for us, which is kind of fun. I'm a little bit more into that uh, interactive back and forth. And so it's a finish the sentence game. Should be real simple. You've probably heard these sayings before. But if I was to say a penny saved, you would say is penny earned. Excellent. Even though we don't have pennies today. Don't count your chickens. Good. A stitch in time. Okay. How many of you like under 30 have actually heard that? Okay. (laughs) Maybe there's not a lot of people under 30 in the room, (laughs) but I don't recall hearing that one. But anyways, it makes sense when I think about it. The early bird catch, oh, the early bird Catches the worm. The second mouse? Thank you. (laughs) Take a moment and think about that one. That's one of my favorite. Never look a gift horse in the mouth. That one took me forever to understand as a kid. Never look a gift horse in the mouth until somebody explained to me, I guess you can tell a horse's age by its teeth, right? And so you don't question the value of something uh, is the idea behind that. What are some that you know? I'm curious. If you were to like say a little little pithy sayings like that, what are some that you could throw out that are maybe ones you heard lots or used lots? I always think of one, uh, those uh, who never save a penny shall never have many. <laughs> I remember that one. Oh, that's good. Okay. Okay. I like it. Early fat, early to rise. Makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, or a woman healthy, wealthy, and wise. It doesn't work. <laughs> it, it doesn't? <laughs> delayed. I, I heard last week you guys talked about God's blessings are delayed in the new covenant. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so maybe that's one of them, right? So it's true. Any other ones? Six of one, half dozen of another. Cool. Which is, yep. Good. It's the same thing. <laughs> I love it. Yep. Good. Yep. There's one from Jamaica. You guys probably don't, have never heard it before. It says, <clears throat> before good food wastes, let belly bust. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Before good food waste, let the belly bust. <laughs> um, yeah, my dad is from the Netherlands, and so he has some that he says in, in Dutch to us, and then translates them, and they don't come through with they don't they don't come through with the same oomph, right? There's one that's like. Well, it's maybe just more a saying. It's about like somebody being hit by a windmill a few too many times. <laughs> Which he said to us, uh, like, don't be like the... Anyways, I can't even say it because <laughs> I'm not fluent in Dutch. But the idea behind this is we have these little pithy sayings, these little memorable things that we hold on to as just they're super memorable wisdom nuggets, right? And we have them in our culture. And even the ones we have in our culture require interpretation, like never look a gift horse in the mouth. You tell that to a grade six kid who lives in the city and has never seen a horse, let alone looked at their teeth, it's like they have no idea what that means. And so it requires some interpretation. And the same is true in when we turn to Scripture and we look at ancient Scripture, we look at the Bible, look at things like Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, some Psalms. They require some interpretation to understand them, but they are similar uh, in many many ways. And similar to our... our, uh, uh, you know, the early bird catches the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese kind of thing. It's the kind of saying, sometimes it's good to be first and sometimes it's good to be second. These are general truths, right? They're not things that are hard and fast rules, and we'll learn that a little bit later on. But there's lots of things in uh, ancient proverbial literature that corresponds to things that we have today. So we're going to start by just uh, taking a little bit of time to talk about what wisdom is talk about what wisdom literature is, and then talk about some common uh, themes for interpreting wisdom literature. And then we're going to dive into each book of wisdom literature and spend a little bit of time talking about that. So first, what is wisdom? So I'm curious to hear some feedback as to uh, what wisdom is, what you believe wisdom is. Knowledge applied. Good. So we have knowledge. Knowledge applied. Any other? Yeah. <laughs> knowledge applied. Any other? Yep, Chris. Experience. Experience. What is wisdom? This class will be great. 
unless you think the first answer is sufficient. So mm -hmm. the right use of wisdom. The right use of can't use wisdom in the definition of wisdom. <laughs> of knowledge. Good. Any last ones? Michelle? According to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Perfect. I like it. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord lays the foundation. Uh, fear of the Lord is truly where you go to start to get wisdom, and uh, we'll see that it plays into every aspect of wisdom. But I think that first definition uh, has a lot of truth. All of them do, really. Knowledge applied, we could say knowledge skillfully applied, right? Uh, understanding what is true and then understanding how to apply it and when to apply it. We would also, if we combine some of them, we could say knowledge skillfully applied so that there's godly living, right? Uh, there's lots of people in our world that live skillfully, but not necessarily skillfully based on what uh, God's word says. So biblical wisdom, here's one definition that, uh, that is used by some commentators. It would say skill in the art of godly living or more fully that orientation, which allows one to live in harmonious accord with God's ordering of the world. Essentially saying God's ordered, he's created the world to work in a certain way. And when you work in sync with the way God created the world, that's wisdom with the way God intended for things to be. Every aspect of wisdom, this is important and kind of speaks to the fear of the Lord. Every aspect of wisdom is in essence a reflection of God's character lived out in everyday life. So when we take the truths of God's character, perhaps his, his knowledge, his wisdom in creation, and we take uh, his, his integrity and we live that out. When we live that out, that is wisdom. Wisdom is one of God's attributes and therefore to know wisdom is to know God. Interestingly, you can look up these verses later, but Job 38 verses 37 and Proverbs 3 verse 19 both speak about how God had uh, wisdom as an integral part of creation. So wisdom, when you look at the way our ecosystems work, the way the land is watered by the rain, the way that reproduction happens, the way that our bodies function in other ways, there's incredible wisdom that is attributed to God for the, how that is created. Ephesians 1.8, we're not really spending time in the New Testament tonight, but this is one area where I think it's just neat to pull in. Wisdom is also attributed to God in salvation. It speaks of God in wisdom lavishing grace upon us, which is so neat. So this whole idea of wisdom is ultimately from God, wisdom is knowledge applied. God in his sovereign knowledge applies that knowledge skillfully in showing grace to us. Wisdom is simply not achieved in the classroom. So tonight, you can receive knowledge, but it doesn't turn into wisdom until tomorrow or tonight later on when you actually act in a wise way. Wisdom is not just intellect, as we mentioned. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge applied, right? And so for that, uh, everyday small choices is where you can ask, are you a wise person? It doesn't matter how much you know. It matters what you do with what you know. Wisdom also goes beyond legal and illegal uh, in our world. There's a lot of people that just would function off the, the, the construct of, is it legal or is it illegal? If it's not illegal, it must be okay. Wisdom goes beyond that, uh, as we'll see throughout scripture. It goes beyond that to, it, to ethics, to a sense of right and wrong and a sense of discretion at the right time, right? Uh, just because it's right to drive uh, after you've made a complete stop through an intersection doesn't mean it's right when somebody steps out in front of you who is jaywalking, right? It, it, wisdom is like, well, even though I have the right way, I'm going to stop, <laughs> right? Wisdom is knowing the right time for things. And wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Proverbs 9, verse 10. Uh, and this is just so you can see this is straight from Scripture where it comes. The fear of the Lord uh, shows up time and time again in all of the wisdom literature, really, with the exception, perhaps, I guess, of Song, Song of Solomon, which uh, is maybe undergirding it, but it's not really expressed. Uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
So when you think fear of the Lord, you think an understanding of who God is, right? A healthy respect and reverence for the fact that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He knows all. He's all powerful. He is everywhere. And to see that and to understand that and to, the, to respond and live in accordance with that. Uh, so we're doing the building addition right outside. And you see the huge metal framework being built. And that huge metal framework is strong enough to then build the rest of the building on. And the fear of Lord, the Lord is like that for all wisdom. When the fear of the Lord's not present, the wisdom of this world will crumple and fall. But when it's built on the fear of the Lord, then it is true wisdom. It's good wisdom. So real quickly, what is wisdom literature? Wisdom is spread across the Bible. So you can look at every book of the Bible and find aspects of wisdom, but there's some books of the Bible where wisdom is concentrated in the sense of this practical, skillful, everyday living type stuff. So wisdom literature is uh, what we would attribute to books like Job. Job is more speculative wisdom, we would say, uh, and so it's written in some poetry, a lot of narrative or sorry, some narrative, a lot of poetry in the middle, and Job deals and wrestles with the issue of suffering. So it doesn't straight out make claims like Proverbs does uh, everywhere. There are lots of them, but it's not quite like Proverbs. Job is more uh, speculative, we would say. Ecclesiastes is another one similar to Job that's a little bit more speculative, speculative and deals with the meaning of life and realizing that wisdom is not the end game goal, right? Having lots of wisdom is great, but you still die. <laughs> you just still die just like the fool. And sometimes you die sooner than the fool and it doesn't make sense. And Ecclesiastes deals with that. Some Psalms, uh, we'll go into the which ones later, but some Psalms are classified as wisdom uh, literature. And that's kind of, a, we, we put these classifications of wisdom literature on them, but frankly, there's no divine mandate saying these are wisdom literature, uh, but we would call those lyric wisdom, much like Song of Solomon is much more what we would call lyric wisdom, uh, where it's using poetry, using very expressive language uh, to communicate wisdom. And then Proverbs is a special branch of its own uh, proverbial wisdom, <laughs> pretty self-explanatory, right? Uh, it is what it is. Proverbs deals a lot of with, this is generally speaking, how the world works and how you should live, uh, generally speaking. Not always does it prove to be uh, true in every circumstance, and that's why you need to use discretion with it. So wisdom literature it could be described as a keen, uh, those books that have a keen interest in the way the world works, humanity's place within it, and how all this operates under God's creative, sovereign care. And so again, it covers topics, uh, very practical, earthy topics, right? It covers topics like how to have good relationships, what sex is all about, right? How to deal with money, how to deal with work ethic, how to deal with power, relationships, suffering, the meaning of life, and so much more. So it's very, very practical. It's kind of like if you walk into chapters and you go to the self-help section, that's kind of what Proverb, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the kind of the wisdom literature is all about. Interestingly, most of these books are poetic like gigantic chunks of it are poetic, which speaks to its uh, need to be memorized or I guess the desire for it to be easily recalled. Kind of like songs today, you can remember probably far more song lyrics than you can letter, uh, like verses from Romans, unless you've been studying Romans and really focusing on memorizing, right? Because our song lyrics have a tune attached to them, they're catchy. And so lots of the Proverbs are similar to things like, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. You're like, it's memorable. I can remember it. It's, it's easy because it, it implants there, right? Even our, even our Proverbs, because um, even though they're in a different language and translated, many of them are so, so memorable, right? Uh, things that you will uh, just hold on to. And so this is important. Uh, they're designed that way because they're meant to be memorized so that you can apply them in the moment, right? It's, not, it's so that you can recall it. So we're going to spend a bit of time in each of those, uh, but we're going to also, and, and to make those applications clear. So a couple other things that I had here. Um, wisdom literature is not unique to the Bible. So uh, at the time when Proverbs was written, at the time when Job, uh, perhaps Job was written, Job is probably one of the earliest written books of the Bible, if not the earliest. And um, But certainly the time that Proverbs was written, there was 
a lot of other wisdom literature in the ancient culture. And so it's not uncommon at all to find parallels, sometimes almost identical wording, to biblical texts in other areas. So uh, in, in Mesopotamian texts, there's all kinds of examples. In an, Egypt, uh, an Egyptian text, um, it's called the instruction of, depending on how you say it, a men hope or something like that. Make sure I'll say it right. Um, yeah, a menomope or menimope. Anyways, so this instruction, uh, Egyptian writing, it actually contains 30 chapters of wisdom writing and there's some parts that like very closely parallel Proverbs 22 and 23. And so uh, the major difference between these texts, just so that you know, is the the biblical texts, the biblical wisdom texts are all undergirded with this idea of fearing the Lord, whereas the other ones are kind of like how to win friends and influence people, right? It's kind of like, here's practical stuff that can help you in life to do better. Uh, we don't have a problem if there's similarities or even identical sections because all truth is God's truth. So if God, you know, in through the Holy Spirit moved that writer to use something that was common in that day and to canonize it in scripture, that's okay. It's God's truth. So I just don't want you to get like all of a sudden, I guess, concerned that some of the Bible might be replicated in another space and place and time, but it's not Bible. Okay. Um, so it's possible they borrowed or who borrowed, who knows, uh, but there's nothing inherently bad about that because it's God's truth. Maybe because the same creator, Right? Yep. That one in our heart. Right. So, so many old books that have really close to the Bible. It's the same creator. Right. That one in our heart. Yep. Or kill, steal. Exactly. Yep, it's the same with like the law codes, right? Like old law codes that's very closely parallel the Old Testament law codes. And you look at them and say, there's so much similarity. And we live in the same world. And so we are going to come up with similar things. People over the years are going to ex be exposed to God's general revelation and make some conclusions. There's some very uh, intelligent people that are not believers that have made proper conclusions about the world we live in because of God's common grace, right? And so that's, in Proverbs, you're going to absolutely see that. And so that's okay. Uh, so I mentioned how to win friends and influence people. A few years ago, somebody recommended that book to me and I read it and I thought, this is absolutely amazing. Like some of the stuff was just so helpful, right? And then I put some of it into practice and realized later down the road that some of it is actually not even biblical though, right? Some of it's, it, it's, it sounds great and it might work, but it's kind of like basically how to win an argument without addressing a conflict, right? And it's like, Sometimes, biblically, we need to address a conflict. <laughs> we have to, right? And so wisdom isn't just how to win friends and influence people, because that's just about straight pragmatics. Wisdom is living godly life, right? And so just as you, it's okay, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity um, makes the point, and I think it's a good one, that Christians don't have to reject all truth from another, another like let's say a false religion. There's elements of it that's absolutely true, Right? It's largely wrong, but they might hit on some things that are actually right. They're not going to be... Um, so, for example, there's other monotheistic religions. They got that right. There's one God. We don't have to throw that out, um, but we have to be very careful to make sure we strain it by God's word, right? Uh, and so just as we're talking about wisdom, that's a very important reminder. Okay. Yeah, two wrongs don't make a right. Yes, exactly. Now, what's interesting... Okay, all those short little sayings they get like embedded in our mind, which I think there's a lot of value then as a parent or as a teacher or as an influencer or discipler to start thinking about how you can communicate things in memorable ways. But we also know that there are some of those sayings that get embedded into us that are actually false, right? And so you, I'm trying, I can't think of one right now, but you, yeah? Uh, godly, or cleanliness is next to godliness. But that's true, right? <laughs> I totally heard that from my yeah yeah my mom too. <laughs> so uh, maybe a little bit of a neat freak because of it. Yeah, cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, not sure that one's right. Yeah, Dave. Happy wife, happy life. 
True story, though. Absolutely. There are lots of wise sayings, things like that, right, that aren't necessarily true. I try to make them up with my kids, so I say things like, to delay to obey is to disobey, which I'm hoping will catch on, but it's not, it's, the meter's not quite right. I need to, I need to tweak that or tweet that? <laughs> Probably both, right? But the idea being, there's actually a lot of value in having these little... Uh, little memorable sayings because they carry with us and can then be applied and used. They're tools that we have. Okay, so some common interpretive techniques uh, for dealing with wisdom literature. First of all, we think, uh, personally, when I talk to guys, and if I do discipleship groups with guys, I love to go to Proverbs because the, the best thing about Proverbs is you read a verse, and nine times out of ten, it's like, it is what it says. You don't have to do a whole lot of hoops to jump through to figure out what it says. It's like, you know, soft answer turns away wrath. I don't have to be a Greek or a Hebrew living 2,000 years ago to know that a soft answer turns away wrath, right? So the temptation, though, is to think that we just understand all the Proverbs that easily. And so not all of it is so obvious uh, that it comes right up, right? So some of it's simple, but there's other things that are a little more difficult. So Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, I can remember wrestling with this as a teen because I'm like, the Bible says two things exactly opposite right after each other. And I don't get why, right? So it says in verse 4, 26, verse 4, answer not a fool according to his folly. Okay, I locked that in. Fool in his folly. I'm not going to answer him. Why? Lest you be like him yourself. Good. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, that's not, a, like, at first it was abundantly clear, but now I'm like, okay, which is it? Which is it? And the truth is, it's situational. It, it depends on the situation, right? And so you can't just go into somebody and say, answer fool not according to his folly, because, okay, it depends on the situation, and this is where discernment comes in. Okay, so not everything is maybe as obvious as it seems, uh, so we've got to take some time to read in context. And that's the next section, or the next point. That's common interpretive technique. This is true of all scripture, but uh, especially in some of the wisdom literature will be proved to be very important. Context, right? Uh, some have said context is king, uh, context rules, whatever you want to use. But the reality is if you take a verse anywhere in the Bible, isolated out from the rest of scripture, you can do a lot of damage with that. Proverbs, it's really easy because in Proverbs 10, chapter 10 through 29, they are isolated, right? It's not like Proverbs 10, 19 or 10, 18 don't necessarily relate to each other. And so it's very easy to just take them out of context and not think more broadly about what scripture says, but we'll get into trouble there. So Job is an example of this. Can't tell you how many times somebody will open up Job and say, the Bible says... And then they'll point to one of the guys that Job's friends who was speaking to Job, who speaks a lot of garbage that God rebukes him later for. It's in scripture, but it's meant to be presented as garbage, right? There's some truth in it, but some of it's just not the right time, not the right application. And so if you just open up Job and you're like, Job 15 something says this, you're not taking it in context, understanding that no, that guy is accusing Job of wrong, but Job didn't do any wrong, right? Uh, so context makes a big difference there. Ecclesiastes, uh, it's an exception, right? So uh, when we look at Proverbs, it says this is generally how things go. Ecclesiastes presents uh, exceptions to the rule, right? Sometimes good people die before bad people, and it's frustrating. Or sometimes people work hard and gain wealth, and then they lose it all. Um, and so we need to, we need to remember the context and remember Ecclesiastes at the very end, we'll get into this, but at the very end, there's a, like a key verse that like unlocks Ecclesiastes so that it makes sense. Song of Solomon, uh, again, context is important, right? Uh, it shows, I guess we're, we're kind of speaking how um, in the context of Song of Solomon, there's a lot going on and it really matters that you read it according to whatever hermeneutic you're going to choose, whatever kind of interpretive grid, right? Is it Jesus and the church? Is it uh, a man and his wife? Is it God and Israel? Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more as well. Okay, so context, really, really important. 
then pay attention to the literary style. So these again are common across all of them. You pay attention to the literary style. So in poetry, uh, we have lots of it in poetry. And if you're not a, an English major, some of this can be lost on you. Um, but there's things like parallelism, right? Uh, so parallelism is where you have like two lines of poetry and line A is maybe saying something like, you know, God is good. There's great references I'll use in a second, right? And line B could say, Satan is bad, <laughs> right? That's very contrary, right? So we call it antithetic parallelism. So let's look at some other examples. So synonymous would be like the same type of parallelism where line one and line two are essentially communicating the same thing, but in slightly different ways. So Proverbs 12, verse 28, it says, In the path of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. So it's saying essentially the same thing, right? It's using slightly different terms. And so when you understand that, it uh, prevents you from reading into the details way too, too much. An opposite example of parallelism is Psalm 1.6. says there, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So it's contrasting, right? The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And it's intending to contrast those next to each other. And that's a poetic device they use. Synthetic parallelism is a completion or an expansion of an idea. And so this would be something like Proverbs 4, verse 23, which says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. So think about that for a second. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life, you're realizing in the first one, it's saying here is what you need to do. And then it's expanding as to why you need to do that, right? Why is the heart so important? Why do we need to be um, keeping it with all diligence? And then a fourth type of parallelism. Again, these things are fairly straightforward, but kind of help you to understand just the tools that the, the writers are using. Emblematic parallelism, where it's kind of using a symbol or an illustration, and then it's explaining it. So Proverbs 25, 18, uh, it kind of explains it first and then uses a symbol. It says, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. And it's, it, it's kind of like a metaphor, but it's also this parallelism kind of showing, connecting these two things together and kind of explaining them. I don't know about you, but I love explaining things in analogies wherever possible because it helps people understand in a different light how things are. Metaphors, similes, these are word pictures. They're slightly different. A, a metaphor is kind of just substituting or saying, like, for example, the Lord is my shepherd is a metaphor. The, the Lord is not literally a shepherd, but he's, he is like a shepherd. He is a shepherd in the way he acts, right? Uh, the Lord is the Lord, <laughs> right? Uh, a simile is like a metaphor, but using like or as uh, so Job 32, 19 says, Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like wineskins ready to burst, <laughs> right? Not a real pretty picture, uh, but he's saying it's like these things. It's similar to this. Again, because we have these functions in our language, we kind of understand these, but it's good to know and to just understand what you're reading. Hyperbole. This one's a little harder to see sometimes, but there are times when things are exaggerated to make a point. So uh, I was talking with my wife about Proverbs 31 because there's the picture there of like the Proverbs 31 woman, right? And if you read through that list, you're like, that's impossible. <laughs> How can you do that all? Like her light never goes out at night? That's a fire hazard. Or, <laughs> or like, when does she sleep? Well, that's hyperbole, right? That's an example of exaggeration saying she's very diligent. She stays up late. She works hard, right? There's acrostics. These we don't see unless your English Bible has uh, clues to help you with this. But Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, that, that picture of this godly woman is actually an acrostic. So that means that the first letter of the acrostic, uh, the first line, I should say, starts with the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew letter Aleph. And then the next one is like the B and then the C, et cetera, except they don't have B, C, right? Aleph, Bait, Gimel, Dalit, that kind of thing. And so it would be 
that, that essentially is a device they use to help people memorize that. Psalm 119, uh, some of you will know because your English Bible draws this one out. There's sections of eight verses, and each section that has eight verses, that every line in that section starts with one letter of the alphabet, and then it moves on to the next one. And so it's super cool. If you're ever really bored in a sermon and like <laughs> looking for something, you can memorize the Hebrew alphabet in Psalm 119, right? You can just go and figure it out. Don't do that. <laughs> That's not a great idea. But anyways, uh, there's personification. Uh, so Proverbs 120 describes wisdom crying aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voices. Wisdom is being personified, and it's throughout all of Proverbs like that. Wisdom, Lady Wisdom is personified, calling out. There's also personification for Lady Folly, right? And so these are, these are again, uh, poetic devices that are used to help kind of paint a picture. This one uh, is fun, and one that is not as evident, but will be super helpful. And that's called a chiasm. So a chiasm is spelt like this. And a chiasm is essentially a structure of the text where there's corresponding elements that function, I guess we'd call it like that, to draw your eyes to a certain truth. So the, the, function, the, the story or the, the poetry or the narrative would function saying A, then B, then C, but then B would be very similar to the first B and A would be very similar to the, the first A. And so it would kind of drive your eyes to this. So uh, the book of Lamentations is that. The whole book is actually a chiasm focused on chapter three, where it says, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So it's like misery, 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 God's faithfulness, then misery, 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 right? And it's all driving towards that point. The book of Job actually has a similar chiasm going on, I believe. And I actually have an outline we'll show you in a few minutes that kind of shows that all of Job is actually pointing to chapter 28. And this is kind of a unique thing. Uh, this is found in other ancient, um, like Hebrew literature and Ugaritic texts and things like, like um, other language groups around that time. So this is a well-known thing that we don't use. So this is kind of a neat thing that we can kind of understand. And so then you look for it in, in scripture. I have a whole book uh, that goes and like draws like tons of these in scripture. Sometimes I'm like, I think that's a little bit stretched, but there's some places where it's like lamentations. It's absolutely so crystal clear. So a chiasm, very important uh, literary device. Okay, the fourth thing... Uh, we do when we approach these wisdom literature texts is we recognize our limits. And so the limits are, we are not fluent in Hebrew. And so there's stuff that will not come through in the translation. And this is hard, even if you study Hebrew, because we don't necessarily know exactly how it's pronounced, but think about our poetry. In our poetry, <laughs> there's words that have similar sounds, but different meaning. And so we use those two words because they have a similar sound, even though the meanings aren't maybe perfect, right? Uh, a great example of this is even just puns. I love puns. It's like the dad joke thing to do, right? Uh, and so when we're having a pear for breakfast, I say, hey, kids, that's perfect, right? It's terrible. It's awful, right? But that doesn't work in other languages because those words aren't similar. So I don't think scripture is full of dad joke puns, but there are places where there are two words used because they sound similar. And we're not going to be able to pick up on that. So that's where it's great to have a commentary or something that kind of draws that out. But just recognize your limits, right? Uh, don't pretend uh, that you know everything there is to know about the Bible, which <laughs> hopefully is true for all of us that we don't take that attitude. One of my professors uh, in Bible school, I'll never forget him saying this over and over and over again. It was kind of annoying how much he said it, but it was good to drive it in. And he said to us, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So essentially there's things you don't know, but the problem is you don't actually know that because if you knew it, you'd know it, right? So it just, it's good. It bears uh, in mind just to have this humility when we approach scripture that there's, there's more going on than what we're aware of. So those sounds, some syntax doesn't always come through in translation. Okay, so we're going to spend some time in Proverbs. Proverbs is uh, super fun. 
all of them really are. God's word is awesome. And I will just say um, from my own life experience, Proverbs is probably proven to be one of the uh, go-to books all the time when I'm making decisions or dealing with conflict. Uh, even as a teenager, I can remember having a huge fight with my mom and reading through Proverbs 1 to 31 after and being like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> and it was, it was appropriate to read it and to understand it. Uh, my mom didn't make me. That would have been a good move on her part. But uh, it was super helpful because it's written to just correct you and to understand how life generally should work, right? So some things, uh, some background stuff for Proverbs that will help you to understand it well. Uh, the author is mostly Solomon. Uh, it says in 1 Kings 3, I believe it is, that Solomon, uh, this is where it records Solomon asking the Lord for discernment, right? Uh, he asks Lord, the Lord specifically because God appears to him and says, basically, what do you want? And he says, give me the ability to, you know, to know right between wrong and to, to discern for this nation. And God answers that. And Solomon is an incredibly wise person. And his first display of that is, you know, these ladies bringing to him a child, uh, these two ladies claiming this child's theirs, and he masterfully finds out who the mother is. And we, we've, if you've heard the story before, then you, you're kind of like, well, why didn't, the, why, why didn't the one mother just say, no, don't kill him, right? You like kind of understand, but we understand the story. We've heard it before in the moment. It was incredibly wise. And so it says there in 1 Kings 3 that he spoke around, I think, 3,000 other Proverbs. And so that's more than recorded in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. Uh, so there's lots more Proverbs that he spoke, but these are the ones that became scripture. There are definitely other contributors to Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, we have the sayings of Agur and King Lemuel's uh, mother. In Proverbs uh, 31, sorry, that's, yeah, that's, and that's parts of Proverbs 31. So Proverbs 30 and parts of 31 are very clearly uh, not his. Proverbs is a collection of Proverbs. And that's indicated because there's actually at least one location where there's like the identical proverb in two sections of Proverbs. I can't remember offhand which one it is, uh, but there's actually like word for word proverb. And then later on a couple chapters, the exact same word for word proverb. And so it's a collection that was gathered together, but uh, Solomon is mostly the author. Major players. So you need to understand these. Uh, the wise are referenced often, right? So the wise person. This is the person who demonstrates godly living, who takes God's word and applies it and lives it skillfully. Then there's the fool. This person's not just unlearned. It's not like they just don't know things. It's not like they're stupid. It's like they're opposed to God. Okay, so the person is opposed to God's ways. Uh, I believe it's Proverbs 5 or Proverbs 8 alludes that there might be hope for the fool because it, it calls the fool to come to his sense. Uh, but the fool, largely speaking, is somebody that's actually opposed to what God is doing. Then there's the simple. This person is the undeveloped person. The person that just hasn't really chosen to be wise or to be foolish. They're just kind of undisciplined right? Uh, they're kind of, they tend to be maybe a little bit more gullible or naive. They haven't applied themselves. They're not really growing. Okay. So the simple person is really where we all start out. We all start out simple. And then we kind of hopefully move into one of two directions, hopefully one direction, truly <laughs> to wisdom, right? Uh, but often people move in the other direction. Some people remain simple. They just don't do anything right? And so there's lots of times in the Proverbs, it'll call out to the simple, to leave your simple ways behind. The audience. So interestingly, I, I hadn't really thought about this, but it makes a ton of sense. In one sense, the audience is broadly everyone. Lady wisdom calls out to any that will hear her. But in Proverbs 1 verse 4, uh, it actually calls out to youth, right? It calls out to the, to the young. And so just looking at Proverbs 1 real quickly. In Proverbs 1, 4, it's telling, reading from Proverbs 1, 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. 
to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It speaks there to youth. So Proverbs is good for all. Let the wise hear and increase, right? But specifically, Proverbs is very, very, very good for those who have lots of major life decisions ahead of them. And one reason why you could even think of this making sense uh, is Proverbs 25, 24. This is like a, a verse I've laughed about often. It's, it's not a laughing matter if you're in this situation, but it is kind of humorous to he- read. And it says in Proverbs 25, 24, better to live on the corner of the roof, thinking flat roof, right? Not our, <laughs> our uh, <laughs> sloped roofs, that'd be even worse. Uh, better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. That, that's like, yeah, it's better to like live in a closet <laughs> than to live in the house with your quarrelsome wife. But that's good news for a young guy who's not married to read, right? That's good for him to read and think, or a young woman reversing, right? Better to live in the corner of the roof than with a husband that's super quarrelsome, right? That's good to read before you get married and to realize I need to make a really wise decision. Once you're married, that's a covenant. It's not better to live on the corner of the roof than with a quarrelsome wife, right? It's not better to now, it's not better somehow to like leave your wife and live on the corner of the roof. That's not the message, right? The message is to the unmarried, here's the truth. And you want to use, uh, you want to use discernment then in who you marry. And so the audience is for sure all people and we can all go to the Proverbs and gain wisdom. But there's going to be some things that are specifically geared towards younger people uh, to grow in wisdom. And so I would just say, by point of application, if you have children, spend a lot of time in the Proverbs because it's super straightforward and it will guide them and give them wisdom for life. Okay, so some interpretive keys. So these are things that you need to lock down and understand so that you don't abuse the text. And the first one is that Proverbs are Proverbs, not promises. You've probably heard that before. It's kind of easy and memorable to say. Uh, But Proverbs do not prove 100% correct all the time. (laughs) That's the same as 100% correct. They are principles that work the majority of the time. There's always exceptions. So classically, right? It's like raise up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Does not mean that if your child departs from the faith that you didn't raise up a child in the way they should go but nine times out of 10 or whatever, the, uh, there's, no, there's no number out there. Like if you have 10 children, nine of them should work out. Again, generally speaking, you raise a child up in the way they should go and when they're old, they won't depart from it. That's what scripture says. And Proverbs is full of that uh, where it talks like, again, uh, my, my wife and I, I love, there's some Proverbs that just like stick in my head all the time. So there's one uh, in Proverbs can't remember the reference right now, but it's a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will become upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And I'm trying to make it into a song for my kids because I think it'd be so fun, right? Even tonight we were trying to sing it and they were actually singing back. I'm like, yes, (laughs) but that's true most of the time. There are some people that sleep and slumber and somehow are still super wealthy. And you're like, come on, that's not the way it's supposed to work, right? And then there's some people that work, 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 and they can't get a break and can't get ahead, but they are faithful, diligent workers. And so just, just so that you don't go to this and say God's word isn't true, they were never intended to be promises. They were intended to be general truth statements. And that's why we have Job And that's why we have Ecclesiastes to kind of round out, here are the exceptions. This is generally speaking how we should live on earth. Okay, they're also not meant to be technically precise. Uh, And so because of the brevity of the statements, they don't have like space in in a memorable statement to say all the caveats, right? To say kind of like, you know, those uh, drug commercials that have like the super long, super fast, but it may cause all these side effects. They're not meant to be technically precise uh, in every way. And so as you, as you read them, you take this as a general truth. You don't kind of dive into the details and to, uh, to, if you find an exception, say it's not true. Again, it needs to be understood in context and applied with discernment. And so some Proverbs say exactly the opposite things, like I had mentioned. Proverbs 26, right? Four and five saying, 
Answer a fool. Don't answer a fool. It depends on the time. Proverbs tend to use figurative language and express things suggestively, kind of like poetry. It's, it is poetry in a sense. Uh, and sometimes they exaggerate to make the point. And so it uses that language and we just need to be mindful. Again, this is poetry. Proverbs also may need some translation. So one proverb is basically says, uh, you know, do your work well and you will sit before kings. That's not true, going to be true for any of you, likely, because we don't actually have kings, right? And so you think, do your work well, and you're going to sit before people of significance, right? You're actually, your work is going to be recognized, generally speaking, and you actually do work for people that are in higher positions of leadership. You might uh, kind of understand it, right? Or you say, uh, the Proverbs speak often about, if you work hard, wealth is going to follow, right? And so we have to understand Last week, I understood you guys talked about a little bit about how God operated in the Old Covenant versus New Covenant. And Old Covenant, God's blessings and his uh, punishments are more immediate, whereas in the New Covenant, more delayed. So not every, in fact, Jesus, by definition of his lifestyle, didn't own property, did not amass great wealth, did not have a place to even lay his head. So that kind of stuff isn't necessarily guaranteed to us. And so we just need to to remember that, kind of bring it into the new covenant and understand uh, what is true. <coughs> and then Proverbs are more practi- are practical more than theological and are not necessarily exhaustive. Uh, and so they really dive into everyday uh, matters, right? And so even taking some time and looking through uh, Proverbs, I think, I don't know if I had given you kind of an outline of them. I kind of skipped that part, but... Uh, so real quickly, just cycling back to an outline kind of in the background section of Proverbs, a real simple outline, and then we'll look at some Proverbs. Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7, again, it's the purpose of the collection of Proverbs, right? To give knowledge and instruction. Then Proverbs 1, verse 8 to 9, verse 18 is actually, chapter by chapter, it makes sense. So like if you turn to Proverbs 5, Proverbs 5 talks all about the adulterous woman, right? And the simple man kind of going that way. So, or is that Proverbs 7 I'm actually thinking of? So it's Proverbs 7 rather, sorry. So Proverbs 7, let's just read a section and you'll see this actually all connects and flows together. So Proverbs 1 verse 8 to 9, the end of 9, actually flows together in chapter sections and are more related. So again, this is proverbial wisdom to the young man. Proverbs 7 verse 6, he says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through the lattice and I have seen among the simple. Okay, so that's the person that they're just not really developed. They're not... They're not rebelling against God. Uh, They're not super wise and chasing wisdom. But here's this person that's kind of unlearned, the person that hasn't been disciplined. I have perceived among the youth a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. So this is going to show a progression of foolish choices that he made or simple choices. He's not not thinking, right? So he's in the wrong place. He's, He's walking down her street. Verse 9, in the twilight, in the evening. So he's walking down in the wrong place. Now he's at the wrong time, right? If you walk that street in the daytime, it's not a problem, but he's walking at night. That's not smart. At the time of night and darkness. Verse 10, and behold, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stray at home, stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him and with bold face says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you like, she's just dripping with you're the one, right? And so it's so obvious to us that she's who she is and what she's about. Uh, But this guy is simple, right? Says I've spread my couch with coverings, covered linens from Egypt, uh, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh, owls, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. It's like the perfect storm for this young guy. 
right? With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. He hasn't thought about it. He could have avoided all of this by taking a different road at a different time of day, not falling prey to the very obvious story that she's fabricating. Uh, I've never met this person. How is it that you're like looking for me, right? But he's caught by all of that because he's simple. All that to say, Proverbs 1 through to 9, it it reads more cohesive. So if you read a chapter at a time, you're like, that actually, I, I can see how they string together. But then Proverbs 10 up until chapter 29 are much more, you grab a section and it's like a little, a little saying, right? So we see Proverbs 10 verse two, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. But right before it, it says a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So that's connected, I suppose. And it's kind of talking about poverty, but then there's, there's things in there that are Proverbs 10, verse 8, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. And so it just goes on, and they're, they're connected by the, the common theme of wisdom, but it's not like every single proverb about finances is, is in chapter 10, and every proverb about, uh, about diligence is in chapter 11. It's not like that, right? They're they're kind of more sporadic throughout. And so you see that. And then Proverbs 30 uh, verses one through to the end, we have these sayings. And so it kind of is, again, these are the words of Agur, son of Jaka, the oracle, right? And so then these ones kind of connect a little bit. And then Proverbs 31 verses one to nine connect and then 10 to 31. And so there's kind of these different units that help us. So hopefully that kind of helps you. The biggest one being Proverbs, a proverb, it's not a promise. And just understand it according to the context. Make sure you're um, walking through general truths of scripture before you apply them. And I think you'll find that hugely helpful. Some of them take some time uh, to understand. Um, and they're meant to be thought over and mulled over. And so Proverbs and wisdom doesn't come fast, right? Uh, it's not like you can microwave wisdom and give it to yourself. That's not how it works. Okay, Psalms. There's a couple of Psalms uh, that would be classified as wisdom Psalms typically. And so possible Psalms to consider as wisdom uh, Psalms are Psalms 36, Psalm 37, Psalm 49. Psalm 73, Psalm 112, Psalm 127, Psalm 128, and Psalm 133. Again, these are ones we kind of look at them and say they have to do with what looks like wisdom literature. They look a lot like Psalm, the Proverbs maybe. Uh, some of them are written by Solomon. Some of them are written by David. Some of them are written by the sons of Korah or Asaph. That's, or those are who they are attributed to. And so these are ones we would consider Psalms of wisdom. So in some interpretive keys, uh, things that generally speaking, if you can, it's helpful. Uh, so there's something in scholarship they call Zitzim uh, Leben, which is a German phrase that basically means setting in life. And the idea is context again, but saying, okay, Psalm 51, for example, uh, you look at Psalm 51 and it's talking about who David, uh, how David repented. It helps a ton to know that that's after his incident with Bathsheba. That makes the Psalm come alive in a different way. And so for these Psalms, if you're able to, Try to kind of pinpoint, hey, when did, who wrote this? Maybe when did they write it? And try to dig into that as much as possible. Again, there's poetic language. So we have to watch out for those different language types and recognizing its place uh, in the Psalter. So there's some Psalms of Ascent uh, that are listed there in those wisdom Psalms. And the song, Songs of Ascent are songs that were sung when people were on their way to Jerusalem uh, to worship when they were ascending the hill. And so they would have been sung corporately, annually. And so some of those things can kind of help you to understand. 
Uh, we're not actually going to spend a whole lot of time in Psalms because there's not too many of them. But if you turn to Psalm 73, you'll see an example of wisdom literature uh, pretty clearly portrayed. Psalm 73, uh, the psalmist is just despairing that in the, temp- in the temporary, in the time of life that he's in, it appears that the evil get away with everything, right? He says in Psalm 73, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Proverbs warns you not to be envious of the wicked. Most of the time, if you think about wicked people, you probably in your mind might think about, maybe, maybe I don't know what comes to your mind, uh, but you might think of somebody that is wicked and is paying for their consequences. But there's lots of wicked people out there that are doing quite fine. They're wealthy. They seem to be getting away with it. They're having illicit sex and they don't seem to be paying the consequences or so it seems. They're shady in their business dealings and they seem to get away with it. And the psalmist is feeling kind of like, I'm envious of the fact that I'm doing the right thing and it's not working out so great and they're doing the wrong thing it seems to be working out great. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, right? <laughs> He's looking at them and saying, they've got it made, I guess. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind, right? And he goes on and on. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And you may feel like that at times. Like all, I've, I've followed Jesus. I've done the right thing, but I'm not getting ahead, right? I don't, I don't feel like things are so much better. But then there's a turning point in Psalm 73, verse 16 and 17. So he's talking about how weary he is of all this evil that's going on and they're getting away with it. And then he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And so then he sees things. He basically, he's doing what all wisdom calls us to do, which is this is your perspective. As much as is possible, try to see things from God's perspective and see there's so much greater reward in following him. The people that are wicked and disobedient are going to be paid the penalty. They're going to pay the penalty. And so we look. So this is just an example. You can see very clearly why this would be attributed as wisdom literature. And it's pretty straightforward, again, simple to see, so much more difficult uh, to put into practice. Because I don't think Pastor Aaron's going to spend a whole lot of time on the Psalms because he's got a a whole bunch of other stuff to cover. The one area of the Psalms that's not really classified as wisdom literature, but I think it's interesting and important to talk about is the Psalms essentially are prayers to God. And so they, all of scripture is God talking to us. And in a very unique and special way, the Psalms are us talking to God, but they're canonized in scripture. Like these are Holy Spirit inspired words. So they give us words to speak to God and to know, hey, if I'm, if I'm speaking the Psalms, I'm pretty safe in my words to God. And so this is great and immensely helpful. If you've never prayed through the Psalms or prayed scripture from the Psalms, it, is, it will transform your prayer life to pray scripture to God because you'll find all of a sudden you're saying what God has said back to him and it just is, it's amazing. It brings depth and substance to your prayers. The big challenge though in the Psalms is there's a type of Psalm called imprecatory Psalms. I'm not sure if you are aware of what that is, but it's essentially Psalms where the psalmist is super ticked off (laughs) because life is awful. And when we think of like, our lives being awful. Most of the situations where there's an imprecatory psalm, it's like 10 times worse than anything you've gone through. Uh, And so you read some of these psalms and you're like, that's horrendous and evil. I don't think a Christian should be able to say that to God. So if you have your Bibles, turn there and you'll see. Psalm 136 is an example where this is just the first time I saw this, I was, I was literally, I don't know if that's appropriate to say. And I totally asked my, uh, my teacher about it. So is it Psalm 36? That it, or is it now? No, it's Psalm 37 rather, sorry. So Psalm 37, 
this is an absolutely devastating situation the psalmist is finding himself in. Uh, and so I'll read it to you. And when you read the whole thing, you'll understand a little bit more of the weight. But there's some stuff in here that's pretty violent. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So they're in exile. They're remembering Zion. They're remembering the, the place they've left. And their tormentors are basically saying, be happy, be glad, sing us some glad songs of Zion. Like sing us those songs of ascent, sing us the awesome stuff, right? And they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And then he calls out to God and he says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's like, blessed be the one who smashes your baby's heads open. That's what he's saying. That's violent. That's awful, right? To read that, I ask the question, can I like ever say that to God and be justified and be okay with that? It's a really good question, I think. To what degree can we say what David or the writers of the Psalms said to God? What degree are we allowed to say that? So a couple of things to maybe consider as we think about these imprecatory Psalms. One is severe situations do bring severe responses. So if your situation is like that of the people who have been exiled, your whole city has been destroyed, people have been killed in front of your eyes, family members have been abused and killed and all this has gone on, you're going to be pretty mad. You're going to be pretty aggressive in your speech, I would assume. Especially talking to God about the judgment of those who have done that. The fact of the matter is God actually knows exactly what's in your heart. And so you're not hiding anything from God to, to, to not talk to him about it. It's interesting. This is recorded as the psalmist talking to God, but it is not the psalmist talking to their captors, right? So anger, anger is something that we're allowed to feel. We, you should feel intense anger when injustice happens. And you should take that anger to God. And in your anger, you should not sin, the scripture says. You should take it to God and process it there so that you don't actually go out and kill somebody. But taking that to God, God already knows what's going on in your heart. And so I think there is an ability in those severe situations to take that to God and to express it. I think what we're going to see in a few minutes in Job is just this. Job suffered immensely, cried out to God and said some things that I wouldn't necessarily recommend saying after you've read Job. But in the moment, Job said them and God doesn't, we're, I'm kind of getting my head out of myself, but God doesn't actually tell Job that what he said was so much wrong. He, he answers with a bunch of questions and we'll see. He kind of takes the conversation in a new way and then speaks later of Job in positive light uh, in front of his friends. And so it's just interesting to note in these situations where it's torment, I believe there's God, God wants us to communicate authentically to him. Respectfully and reverentially, he is God. But don't try to pretend like you're going to like, you know, when you talk to your spouse about a situation or you talk to a friend about a situation and you try to make it sound a lot better than it is what's going on inside, God sees through all that, right? So just have it out, talking with God, deal with that before going to other people. So a little note there on the imprecatory Psalms, uh, kind of an application point before we break for a moment is anger. Uh, this totally unrelated to our discussion in some ways, but anger is actually a good emotion that goes wrong 
a lot, right? The anger of man doesn't produce what God wants, but there is a righteous anger. And I've been thinking a lot about this because I tend to be a little bit more of the anger's a bad thing. Stuff anger, shut it down, shut it down, right? All smiles, all joy, all like shut it down. But we actually, and I'm maybe challenging this and just sharing this with you. I need to teach my children when to be angry and how to be angry. Because otherwise what I'm going to do is I'm going to end up raising a bunch of children that don't get angry when they see somebody getting abused. They don't get angry when they hear about God's word being misapplied or God being blasphemed. They don't get angry at those things. And they're not angry about what God's angry about. And so that, that's a, a just, I guess, a huge, huge issue. We have to make sure we teach them to be angry at the right things. And then maybe pray the imprecatory Psalms with our children in some way and shape and form and say, it's right when you are super, super ticked at somebody to take that to God, not to the other person. So anyways, as we go to a break, uh, take five, five minutes or so. I'm just curious uh, on your break, discuss among yourself or think to yourself, who's the wisest person you know that's living, that's not in this room. Uh, Think about that person and then think about a couple of qualities that person might have. And then when we come back in five minutes, uh, I'll get somebody to share those qualities. Okay. So think of some of the wisest people, you know, uh, outside this room and some of the qualities they have, and then we'll get those qualities.